and I've always enjoyed playing sport, outdoor activities, even indoor activities uh, and games. I've now managed to restrain myself a little bit, as you can tell, and I spend more time watching sport and watching activities than playing them myself. Although one of the highlights in my week, and it's not every week, but it happens every now and again, is I get to come down to youth group here on a Friday night and I get to relive uh, my younger days of being active and running around uh, with the teen. I, I love teaching the Bible, don't get me wrong. And I love seeing young people come to know Jesus and put their faith in him. But I do love running around and playing games as well, whether it's indoor soccer at the back of the church hall, basketball outside if it's not too dark, or just an intense wide game running around the property. I love it. And I'm a little bit competitive as well. So sometimes I have this look on my face like, watch out. He just wants to win at all costs. But I'm not the only one. If you see any of the current youth leadership crew on a Friday night, some of them are very intense in the way that they uh, involve themselves in activities. You watch Kaz Hallam. She's just crazy uh, in a Friday night activity. Uh, but uh, Sandy, uh, she's, uh, you've got to watch out for Sandy too. Uh, she's very competitive. There was a famous NFL coach who said this about winning. Vince Lombardi said, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. Winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Now, you may not go that far, and I definitely don't go that far either, but it does highlight, I think, something within all of us that we are competitive by nature. We do want to be a little bit better, either than our past performance or better than somebody else. It might be in our marks at school or university. It might be our productivity at the office or wherever we're working. Uh, it might just be we want a bigger bank balance or a better house. We are competitive and want better things by nature, I think. And it's been my observation, and I, I wonder if it's been yours as well, that when it comes to relationships and sex, that these things can be viewed in the same way as well. We may not see a slogan that says sex isn't everything, it's the only thing. But the things that you're watching on TV or at the cinema or the things that you're reading in magazines today or on the internet, everything designed to tell you how to do it better, you can't help but think that sometimes in our culture sex is seen as a game or a sport and there are gold medals on offer for high performers. And then there's the conversations that I've heard over many years, particularly amongst young men who have often had too much to drink after a sporting match, boasting about their sexual conquests or what they would really like to do to that pretty young girl behind the bar. Sex, I think, is seen as a game of conquest by many in our culture. But is it? Is it just a game? And if it is, how do you know if you're winning or losing? Or are they the wrong questions to be even asking to begin with? Well, they're the questions that are answered, I think, in Song of Songs, uh, chapter 3. Uh, we're halfway through this love song sermon series. And I've said right from the beginning that I believe the Song of Songs is a, a vivid picture or illustration of what genuine human love and intimacy can look like if you follow God's pattern from the garden of Eden. And we've seen two great pillars for building an intimate and loving human relationship so far in the series. The power of words of adoration to create life and the power of being a place of safety 
uh, for other people that you are in relationship with. Now, as we move into chapter 3, it's a slightly different picture uh, today. What I want to suggest chapter 3 is, is a, a picture of two different bedrooms. Two different bedrooms that we are invited to peer into, as weird as that sounds. And what we see in these two bedrooms are meant to raise a question for us at the end, which bedroom do we prefer? Do we prefer bedroom A or do we prefer bedroom B? I want to suggest that one bedroom is the bedroom of Solomon and the other bedroom is the bedroom, of course, of the couple, the lover and the beloved that we've come to know over the last few weeks. So let's have a look at these two bedrooms. We're going to look at the second one first which is the bedroom of Solomon, I'm suggesting, and it's verse 6 to verse 11. And there's a reason I'm going to be calling it the bed of conquest. But let me read it to you again, verse 6 to verse 11. What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, scented with myrrh and frankincense, from every fragrant powder of the merchant? It is Solomon's royal litter, surrounded by 60 warriors from the mighty of Israel. All of them are skilled with swords and trained in warfare. Each has his sword at his side to guard against the terror of the night. King Solomon made a sedan chair for himself with wood from Lebanon. He made its posts of silver and its back of gold and its seat of purple. Its interior is laid with love by the young women of Jerusalem. Come out, young women of Zion, and gaze at King Solomon. Wearing the crown, his mother placed him on the day of his wedding, the day of his heart's rejoicing. Now, other than chapter 1, verse 1, this is the first time that the name of Solomon appears in the song. And here we have a picture, I think, of Solomon in all of his pomp and royal show. Uh, he appears on the scene uh, with his military escort, 60 armed fighting men, warriors with their swords. He arrives on what's known as Solomon's litter or his sedan chair, verse 7 and verse 9, uh, which in the ancient world was like a big couch, a big couch that would be carried by servants. You know, picture a big lounge or a, or a chariot without wheels that people would lift up and, and carry the king around on. And it looks amazing, this sedan chair, this couch. It smells amazing. It's perfumed with fine spices and myrrh. It's crafted from the finest wood of Lebanon. Its posts are made of silver, its back of gold, and its interior with expensive cloth and fabric. It's a picture of opulence, power, and wealth. But what is striking is that this couch is no ordinary royal runabout. Something unique is stated about this couch in verse 10. We're told that its interior is inlaid with love by the young women of Jerusalem. Now, what does that mean? Well, some might say that means that this couch must have been made by love, love for Solomon. But I actually think it's a couch for making love with Solomon. It's a picture of Solomon's bed, I think. A sedan, if you like, to take him on a journey. 
of sexual fantasy and delight. And the daughters of Jerusalem, as well as us today, we're invited to look at his bed, look at his couch, and to see what is happening there, and to ask, is Solomon winning? What do you see as you look at Solomon on his couch? Well, in verse 11, we see that Solomon is there wearing his crown, the crown his mother gave him maybe on the first of his 700 weddings. And some commentators suggest that what we're meant to see here is potentially Solomon only wearing a crown on his bed, posing, willing and eager, waiting for the next young virgin of Jerusalem to come and spend a night with him on his royal couch. Verse 7 and 8, as we continue to look at this bed, we see that it is surrounded by 60 armed warriors with swords at their side, prepared, we're told, for what? For the terrors of the night. Who's afraid? Is Solomon afraid? Or are the women afraid? Verse 6, we're not so much seeing things in verse 6, but we're smelling things. The aroma of myrrh and spices Uh, the fragrance of this bed. And I don't think that that's by accident that that's referred to that way because I think the writer, Solomon himself, is trying to paint another picture for us of what this bed really is like. And in the Old Testament, myrrh and spices were often associated with sacrifice. As you go to the temple, the priest would offer sacrifices and there'd be myrrh and incense and all that kind of stuff. And so what we're meant to see as we look at Solomon's bed, it's a picture of power, it's a picture of conquest and sacrifice, where the nameless women of Jerusalem are sacrificed on this altar for Solomon's sexual gratification. But the question still remains, is Solomon winning? Does Solomon find satisfaction in this bed? You might think, how can he not? But it's interesting. Solomon never speaks in this part of the song. He never says, hey guys, look at my bed. This is amazing. Look at them just lining up to come and be with me. He never says that. Not at all. But we are told in verse 6 where this bed, where this sedan, where this couch is coming up from. Do you notice where? From the wilderness or the desert. And could that be a subtle reference to Solomon telling us about what his experience has been like on his bed? That even though he's had all the sexual pleasure that he could ever want or that any man could ever want, It's actually been a place of barrenness, a desert place. It hasn't taken him on the journey of sexual delight that he may have once thought. The desert is, of course, no garden of Eden. It's no picture of fertility, but of death. Uh, I wonder if, I don't know if you've been watching the, The Badgular in recent weeks, or The Bachelor, the Australian version of it, with Nick Cummins, the honey badger lived in a house for a little while with 
the most beautiful of women at his beck and call. And he gets to the end of the series and he has a choice. But he still can't find love. Who would have thought that in a house on TV with a bunch of other women that he couldn't find love? Solomon, I think, could empathise with him. Because after his desert experience in his bedroom, he realised that love is more than physical gratification. That's the bed of conquest. Other commentators will say something different on that chapter. Uh, Some will talk about, oh no, this is a picture of Solomon's wedding day. It's a positive picture. Uh, But as you read it, I just cannot see that this is anything but Solomon himself saying, this was not a positive picture. I may have had a wedding day. My mum may have gave me a crown. It may have been a great day then. But ever since, I've just made mistake after mistake after mistake. And that this place was not healthy. Let's have a look at the second bedroom the bed of closeness I'm calling this and I think the writer of Song of Songs Solomon himself sets this bedroom up in stark contrast to his own have a look again at verse 1 to 4 in my bed at night this is the woman speaking I sought the one I love I sought him but did not find him I will arise now and go about the city through the streets and the plazas I will seek the one I love I sought him but didn't find him The guards who go about the city found me. I asked them, have you seen the one I love? I had just passed them when I found the one I love. I held on to him and would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house, to the chamber of the one who conceived me. It's another bedroom. And did you notice the focus of the person in this bedroom is not the man, but the woman. It starts with her looking at her and I think she's dreaming as she's lying on her bed because what she does next in the in the opening verses of chapter three is something that you would not normally do in reality I mean you wouldn't do it in today's society let alone in the 10th century BC which is wake up in a panic and run outside throughout the streets and the the city squares just wearing your nightgown It just wouldn't happen. So I think she's dreaming about her husband, her lover. And we've all had weird dreams, I guess, at times. I won't share any of my uh, weird dreams. But notice how this dream ends. It ends positively. She finds her man. She finds her husband and she grabs onto him and she leads him back to the bedroom, to the place of closeness. And I want you to see the contrast between this bedroom and Solomon's. In Solomon's bed, we saw that there were victims sacrificed on his altar. But there are no victims in this other bedroom. The woman is no victim. She knows no terror of the night. She's not afraid to even go out at night, in her dream at least. She's not a victim. She's not powerless. In fact, she is the one who initiates in this bedroom she's the one that seeks him and grabs hold of him and leads him into the bedroom solomon's bed had a military escort as if solomon needed protecting or as if solomon needed to ensure that his women stayed where they needed to stay but in this bedroom there are no swords 
There is no coercion. There is no sleeping with somebody against their will. The couple freely and willingly give themselves to each other. As I said, Solomon's bed, I think, was a desert, a barren place. But this bedroom is a place of fertility. And I think that's what we're meant to see by the reference to going into the mother's house and to the, to the, the parents' bedroom. Kind of, I don't know if you found that a little bit weird, kind of she's leading him into a parent's house and then into the main bedroom, like, go somewhere else, don't go into the parent's house. But it's not meant to be icky or gross, it's actually meant to be symbolic of this is a place of closeness and intimacy, this is a place of safety and security, this is the place where life is made and conceived. This is not a barren place, this is a place of fertility. This bed is a bed of closeness, not conquest. And so as you peer into both bedrooms, which do you prefer? Do you prefer Solomon's or do you prefer the lover and the beloved? Well, I think from the perspective of the Song of Songs, it's clear which bed we are meant to prefer. And it's not Solomon's. It's the bedroom of the lover and the beloved. Because I think the message of this part of Song of Songs is that sex is not about conquest. It's not a game where he who with the most partners wins. It's about closeness, about faithfulness, about monogamous passion between a husband and his wife. And I think that's made clear in the refrain of verse 5. We read this refrain for the first time last week and we're going to see it again later in Song of Songs. The refrain, verse 5, Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. And I think the context of the refrain there in chapter 3 is that the world of sexual desire and passion is a powerful force. And if it's left unrestrained, just express your sexuality however, with whoever, whenever you want, is a dangerous place, potentially a barren place. But if sexual passion and desire is restrained into the the confines of the covenant of marriage, it can be something delightful and beautiful and life-giving. Sex is about closeness, not conquest. But I think the sad reality for many people in our day and in our culture is that we choose the bedroom of Solomon over the bedroom of the lover and the beloved. Whether it's the casual hookup after work at the Christmas party, whether it's an illicit affair, or whether it's the use of internet pornography, where many men today have a virtual harem that would make Solomon blush. Many of us choose the bedroom of Solomon. And I want to talk a little bit about internet pornography tonight because I think that that is the current bedroom of Solomon for many of us. We may think, I don't have 700 wives and 300 concubines, I'm not a sex addict like Solomon. But virtually, on the internet, I want to suggest that some of us may just indeed be like Solomon. And it can be just as barren. You might know this 
alarming statistic, that 93% of teenage boys have seen a pornographic image. 93%. That means you'll be hard-pressed to find any teenage boy that hasn't seen an image of something that ought to be reserved for their wedding night. 68% use porn weekly. And I'll let you work out what use might mean. And often the response is, it's just a game, it's just fantasy, it's just entertainment, it's not hurting anybody. But it's not. I want to suggest that it's just as barren as what Solomon experienced in reality all those years ago. It's a place of barrenness both for the Solomons in front of the screen, but it's also a place of barrenness for the nameless victims, often women, behind the screen. Maybe you're a Solomon in front of the screen. Let me tell you what's really happening as you're watching. Pornography is changing your brain. In fact, it's rewiring your brain and you become addicted to it if you constantly are using it. Let me be crass for a moment, but I hope it's okay. Every time you have an orgasm, your brain releases a chemical called dopamine, which is a feel-good, a pleasure chemical that God designed in your brain to be released when a married couple sleep together so that their bond is actually improved and enhanced the more often they are intimate with one another. It's designed to actually enhance and build their relationship. But if you are using pornography and having dopamine hits every time you are using pornography, what you are doing is you are rewiring your brain or training your brain to associate pleasure with pornography, pleasure with fantasy. And if there is a constant dopamine hit in that way, what you're doing is you're rewiring your brain to prefer the fantasy over reality. And that can cause a whole lot of dysfunction, not only in your own physical health, men in particular, but to your relationships, your marriage, to your future marriage. I have counselled so many young couples over the years who are almost on the verge of a breakup because of a husband's use of pornography. Countless. Uh, I've seen some people almost lose their jobs over their addiction to pornography. Uh, you may have heard the story of John Mayer, pop star, well-known. He's been quite open and public that he has an addiction to pornography. So much so that he cannot have, in reality, an intimate relationship with somebody. Or not a long-lasting one anyway. Because he has rewired his brain by his constant use of pornography to prefer the fantasy world over the real world. And so he just has a train wreck of relationship after relationship after relationship. And he's quite open about it. Tiger Woods was the same. Maybe some of you here know that reality as well. And you call yourself a Christian, which just makes it worse, doesn't it? Because now you have an element of shame and guilt hanging over you. 
as well. Maybe you know the barrenness that Solomon experienced all those years ago. But I want to suggest it's also a place of barrenness for the women behind the screen. And it mostly is women. I know that there are sites for women. But the bulk of pornography is the viewing of women. And they are just like the nameless victims of Solomon. Men don't care what the girl's name is on the screen. It doesn't matter because they're not real people. They're just objects to be used to make me feel good. But it's not a a harmless fantasy. This is the testimony of Jessica. Jessica was once the top Googled porn star. And this is how she described her experience. Porn took everything from me. I no longer had friends. I didn't have my family. Being constantly used by others filled me with emptiness and despair. I would have money in one hand, yes, but a bottle of alcohol and pills in the other. And before I went to bed, I would pop as many pills as I could get my hands on and then just drink and drink and drink, trying to overdose to not wake up to this reality again. Porn took everything from me. Porn is not harmless, both to the Solomons watching or to the nameless victims behind the screen. It's just as dangerous and barren. But I think even sadder than the widespread use of pornography in our culture is the effect that it's had on our mainstream culture. Um, Many experts today talk about our mainstream culture being pornified. That is just regular advertising, music, you know, books that you read, just mainstream media has now been sexualized because of the impact that porn has had on our culture. I mean, look at, this is just an ad on the screen for school backpacks. Now, I was going to ask, uh, does anyone see a problem with that ad? And uh, I'm a bit scared to ask the question because some of you might say, no, there's no problem with that. Which shows you the effect that porn has had on our mainstream culture. Because look at the girl in the middle. Short shorts, posed with her leg out the front, with a lollipop in her mouth. What is that meant to portray. And what are the boys, what are they doing? Looking at the girl. Because we now live in a hyper-sexualized culture. Porn has drip-fed. The images that we once used to have to go out of our way to get access to has now just drip-fed into our culture and shaped every aspect of our culture. And so what's the solution then? Well, the solution, I don't think, is just to pastors and school teachers and parents just saying, stop it, don't look, turn off the computer, put another filter on your device. They're all good things to do. I'm not saying don't do that. But I'm saying if pornography and the images of pornography have drip-fed into our mainstream culture, we need something more than just simply saying, stop it, don't look at it. Because it's everywhere, it's the, it's the very world that we're, it's the air that we breathe, it's the culture we're swimming in. We need something more than just rules. We need actually our minds to be renewed, to find images like that repulsive. 
and to replace it with other images that are beautiful. And praise be to God that he can do that for us because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that in Jesus, God stepped into our skin. And as he stepped into our skin, he said to every human person that's ever lived, and particularly to women, I want to say tonight, that you are not an object to be used. Or to men. You're not an object to be used, but you're a person to be loved. I became one of you, God said. And it's interesting, as Jesus um, engaged with the people of his day, particularly the women of his day, who sometimes religious leaders wanted to get rid of. You know, the woman caught in adultery, whatever that means. People wanted to get rid of her, stone her to death, but Jesus said, no. She's to be loved and valued. Yes, she needs to move away from her life of sin, but I love her and I value her as a person, not as an object. And of course, Jesus faced the very temptations that we men face, but he was faithful which means that he could offer up his life as the perfect sacrifice for all of our lustful thoughts and desires, all of our imperfections. And he could offer us forgiveness and cleansing and a fresh start, a new life. And in that new life, there is the real opportunity, the real hope of change. Because as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now, how does God renew our minds? Well, it's as we fill our minds with the Word of God. You see, if there is to be a sword in our bedrooms, it's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. As we fill our minds with the Word of God, the images of our mainstream culture, the images of pornography can become repulsive. And I hope that Part of what I tried to do tonight is to build within you a sense of repulsion at Solomon's bedroom and particularly pornography today. But I want to do more than just repulse you by that. I want to replace that with the lover and the beloved, the images of the Garden of Eden, of real genuine human love and intimacy and how beautiful and good it is so that it shapes the way that you think about women, men, about men, women. So that it shapes as, us as parents as we teach our children what to expect in relationships. Something positive and not just negative. And I think it's why reading Song of Songs is so important. And it's challenging, isn't it, reading Song of Songs? It's challenging preaching it and trying to wrap our heads around what it means and what it's talking about. But it's so important that we invest in it it's so important just generally to read God's Word so that we fill our minds with what is true and noble and positive and life-giving and not just barrenness and death and dysfunction. Because that is the culture around us and if we don't fill our minds with God's Word, by default we will just fill our minds with that other stuff. So where does that leave us tonight? Well, for some of you it might need to start the next step for you might be just to confess. Not publicly. Privately between you and God. Confess that maybe you've been a Solomon. And to repent of it. To acknowledge the barrenness. Maybe you are well aware of the barrenness that it's causing you. Maybe you're well aware 
of the negative consequences of your pornography use. And maybe you feel overwhelmed with shame or guilt. You need to just bring that to the Lord. Remember, he has paid for your sin in full. And you can change. Addictions can be overcome by the powerful word of God. You might need to get some other help. There might be other people that you need to talk to. But the first step in overcoming is to acknowledge that there's been a problem. And to ask God for help. And to ask somebody else. Maybe that's the first step for you. But maybe you're not a Solomon. Maybe you are more like a Jessica. Maybe you're a girl here that has been used by men. Abused by them to fulfill their own desires and have been discarded. And maybe you feel ashamed by that. Maybe you feel unclean. How could God love me? You need to hear tonight that you are loved by God. You are not an object. You are a person. And he became a person, God did, to show you that he values you and loves you. He died for you. You are clean if you've put your trust in Christ. You are welcome here as are all who want to put their trust in Christ. But I think all of us have a choice to make tonight. And that is the choice to fill our minds with not what our culture is portraying in terms of sex, love, relationships, but with what God's word says. We have the opportunity to make a choice to live differently to everybody else. To not follow the example of Solomon that so many people do, but to follow the pattern of God's word, to fill our minds with his word, so that those images that ought not to be in our minds have no room to play because they're filled with other images and other thoughts that are good. And it's why we encourage every member of our church to be in a discipleship group or to meet up one-to-one with somebody, because it's hard to keep filling your mind with God's word and good things because of the culture that we live in. And so we need each other's help to put this into practice. So if you're not in a discipleship group, can I encourage you to get into one? I will make it a priority for 2019. And if some of the issues that I've mentioned tonight, particularly, say, pornography use, men, women, if that's an issue for you, don't try and pretend that it's not a problem. Don't hide it. Talk to somebody about it. Talk to people in your discipleship group if you're comfortable. And if you're not, talk to a trusted Christian friend. Come and talk to me. I'm not going to tell anybody. But I want to pray with you. I want to read God's word with you. And I want to encourage you that there is a better way. And just imagine if we all made that choice. To fill our minds with God's word. Can you see the impact that we could potentially make? We are a small church, yes, a small community within a big city. But if each one of us made a decision that we're not going to be like everybody else, we're not going to be like Solomon, we're going to follow God's good pattern. Can you see the impact that we could potentially have? Because there are men out there, just as there are men here, who are feeling guilty, ashamed, addicted to something that maybe they don't even want to be addicted to, and we can offer them hope. There are women out there who are victims of sexual abuse. And we have the opportunity to tell them that they are loved and valued by God and are welcome here. We are a small community, yes, but if we can convince one, two, three, four 
or a whole bunch more that there is an alternative to life. Something delightful and beautiful. We could just start to shift our culture a little bit for their good. Can you see it? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we have read and we've discussed hard things tonight, confronting things for some of us. Some of us, we know that we have been following Solomon's example, either deliberately or just because that's the pattern that we have fallen into. So, Father, we acknowledge that we're sorry for that and we ask, Father, that you please, by the power of your Spirit, change our minds, change our hearts, Make those images of sexual gratification outside the realm of marriage repulsive to us. And if we are married, please make our spouse and our marriage beautiful to us, that we do not seek pleasure anywhere else. For those of us that have been used by others, Father, thank you that we know that you love us deeply, that we are clean in your sight because of Christ. And Father, strengthen us all. Strengthen us to believe your word when it says this is the best way to live. And inspire us to put it into practice, not only for our good, but for the good of so many that need it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.